Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hey, it's Cindy Howes and Lizzie No from the podcast Basic Folk, honest conversations with folk musicians. Basic Folk is truly changing the game with our well-researched deep dives that aim to empower the listener while fostering the folk community. I basically am writing worship music for youth group rejects. Maternal regrets and maternal guilt are universal. I try to make things that are beautiful and that are made with like a purity of intention. You can listen to Basic Folk on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network or at basicfolk.com. Hello, everybody. Oh, my goodness. I am so excited for you to hear this episode with the incredible Jewel. I love Jewel. I've loved her since I was a little girl. My very first singing solo ever was in my church youth band. And they gave me the solo of Hands, Jewel's beautiful song, Hands, which we talk very in-depth about in this interview because it has a lot of meaning for her as well. I'm so in awe of her. She's such a expander for me in the sense of how she uses her platform for good and for mental health awareness and how honest she is about her own struggles in her life and how that informs her creativity and her art and I think you're going to learn so much and be so inspired and definitely feel better about your day or your week or your month after listening to this beautiful episode with Jewel. So please enjoy. I'm so excited to talk to you. I feel like I already know you from Instagram and just growing up loving you, Jewel, but this is, I'm honored and I've been so nervous all week to talk to you because I feel like I need to down all of your wisdom in this 2020 hell I've been feeling this week. I'm like, I just, oh, I adore you and thank you so, so much. This is so exciting for, for us to have you on. Yeah, I'm stoked for what you're doing. Really glad to talk. And it is funny, you know, social media can be really vapid, but it also really lets me get to know people I never would have known, know. like you. So it's cool. It's so cool. How are you? Uh, how are you doing this week? I feel like everybody I've talked to this week is having like a pretty intense uh, week for some reason, just with everything happening with the world and oh, all of the uh, sickness and everything. But you seem so grounded and, you know, your mindfulness practices and everything really seem to uh, to be something that you, you're able to stick to, which I'm, I'm so in awe of because I've been trying so hard this week and I nothing's working for me, Jewel. <laughs> I'm so de depressed and so anxious. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I've had a really transformative year, and there's so many things just from what you're talking about that I'd love to go into. But I guess the main thing that comes to mind is the reason we practice mindfulness. Mindfulness is just a word for conscious presence. That's all that word means. It's kind of been a weird word. The reason we learn how to be consciously present, which is a practice, so that we can be in harmony with our environment. You know, we have to be in a relationship to our environment. And I think what COVID is really making really clear is we are in a relationship to our environment. Um, when we're taken out of that relationship, we're still in relationship to it. It's just now we have to be in relationship to it in a different way. And we have to be in harmony with what's actually happening right now so that when I'm consciously present, I can go, all right, what's working? What isn't? What are the problem solves for it? What are the feelings I'm having? If you're not consciously present, you don't get to do any of that. You're not in harmony with the moment. And then that's where we get into exhausting ourselves, trying to do things the way we used to do them in another moment. Um, I think one of the hardest things for me to accept in my life was this 
I am in relationship to an unpredictable world, right? I mean, if you could define God as five expressions of life, death, birth, decay, and creation. Ooh, I love that. Those five primal powers are at work all the time and they're wild and we don't get to control them. And some of us have experienced, you know, the more negative ones a lot, like me, you know, like recovering from my life over and over got me to be where I was obsessed with death and decay. And because they seem to be happening everywhere. And a lot of my mental and creative talent even went into hypervigilance of trying to predict where will the next, next death and decay happen. <laughs> so I can predict it and thwart it off, which isn't really being in relationship to your environment. It's trying to control it. And you can't control life, death, birth, decay, and creation. So how do you come into relationship with it and what started getting me to a place where I could really be in peace with the fact that we are all susceptible to the wild acts of change. And I don't get to choose how life changes, but I do get to choose how it changes me. Mm. And that focus where we stop trying to keep ourselves safe through outward, basically control. Often even we practice our spirituality to try and control our environment. It's a form of manipulation. That is exactly what I feel like is happening with me is I'm using the spirituality as a means of control, which has now completely backfired. Yeah. And if I just get it right, then I'll be able to control my environment. And then every time you can't, you see it as a failure on your part, you know, um, and that's that's a difficult place to be. I've, I've been there a bajillion times. <laughs> and it's like that, you know, I think all of us this year with the uncertainty is the name of the game. And like you said, you are someone in your life who's experienced those deaths over and over again and having to come back and rebuild. And so maybe the key is, as I'm hearing you talk, is like, is it resiliency? Yeah, resilience. You know, for me, I learned resilience from looking at forests because I grew up in nature. You love yes. nature a lot. And <laughs> resilience basically is just having multiple tools. Mm. You know, if you want to get really simple about it, a yeah. forest is resilient because it has plants that do good during drought and other plants that do good during flood. And other droughts that do uh, plants that do good during really windy environments, each, each of those elements. So our job, if we want to be resilient, is basically saying, are we training for our weaknesses and not just our strengths? Because we have to keep rounding out our skill sets. So what COVID is asking us to do is evolve, right? We're being asked to evolve in real time. And evolving means gaining new skill sets. It's painful, you know, and that really is just part of it. It's an uncomfortable thing to have to train a weakness, to have to go, everything I've done isn't really working right now. I must have to learn something new. When you start adding shame on that, we get really paralyzed and overwhelmed and those things. So the more I try and take um, the self-judgment out of it and just go, all right, I'm a forest. And my whole life has helped me build X skill sets now my life is asking me to suddenly and rapidly build why. Let me just go to school on it instead of judging myself and why am I feeling all these feelings and getting caught up in basically a distraction. You know, a lot of that just keeps us distracted where we don't actually get to the work of change. And I love what you said about uh, anxiety. You know, our body, you know, only has a couple ways of communicating with us. And our feelings and our emotions are, are the main one. And so if... And our physical reactions. If if uh, I eat something that's bad, I'm going to get food poisoning. I'm going to throw up. And that's my body's way of saying, don't ever do that again. Note to self, don't eat five-day-old chicken. Right. <laughs> our anxiety is kind of like that. It's our body's only way of telling us whether we're in harmony with our environment or not. A lot of what I did when I was young, even the environment I was raised in, didn't agree with me. And my body was anxious. When I was homeless, I was having panic attacks and agoraphobic. And when I started to go, wait, what if my anxiety doesn't mean something's wrong with me? Which was always my takeaway. Something must be wrong always, with me. Always, right. Yeah. And what if, what if my anxiety actually means something's right with me? Mm. What if it means my system is working and it's trying to say, hey, idiot, <laughs> your life doesn't agree with you. And sadly... Pretty much my entire life didn't agree with me. That's a radical thing to take accountability for and go, am I willing to change it? And so 
when you learn to sit and breathe, even if it's really uncomfortable and you, you invite your anxiety to come sit with you as an ally and say, what are you trying to tell me? Because if we try and stiff arm it and we try and push it out of our environment, we're disassociating, um, which I get why we do it because anxiety is really uncomfortable. <laughs> I was going to say, I just said to my husband, Michael, last night, like disassociating has been the name of my game of 2020. And I'm really trying to like have a dialogue with the anxiety and let it be seen and all these things. But like, I love the story that I, I've, I've loved you for a long time that I've known where you talk about contracting and dilating and, and looking at your hands and then, of course, writing your beautiful song, Hands. But was songwriting and sort of creativity, well, in that time, was it for you one of your tools in your tool bag for combating anxiety? And my question for you is, does it still to this day, even after having this powerful career you've had, is it still your toolkit? Because I've found that sometimes when you make what you love your work, the creative flow for me sometimes isn't the escape that I maybe had found in my younger years. I guess I'm going to start first with what you said about when our when our passions can become a bit of a prison. Um, every person experiences it, whether we're artists or not, whether we're lucky enough to our passion ended up turning into a career. It happens with motherhood. You know, you you dream of being a mom, you want to be a mom, and then you're like, being a fucking mom's <laughs> making me die you know, on some level. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I mean, I don't know yet, but someday I yeah. will know. <laughs> yeah, and so it, we always have to manage the regeneration, you know, where our idea and concept of something, once you achieve it, isn't maybe, there's things you might want to do. It happened to me over and over and over, but when my my first record got so popular and then my second one and I couldn't pee without people following me into the bathroom and I wasn't happy and I, I felt grateful to be there, but I also wasn't happy. And so I quit for two years after my album Spirit and I really had to give myself permission to go, all right, I dreamed a dream as an 18 year old and it came true. Yeah. Unbelievable. But the reality of it isn't what I thought it would be. And when I gave myself permission to go, what would I need to change to make it work for me? That felt really empowering. And what I realized is I didn't like being that famous. And you're not supposed to say that because you worked <laughs> so hard to get to that level. But it just didn't agree with my system. It gave me anxiety. And so for me, I wrote, you know, I had to write down the things that made me happy about it. And I realized the things that make me happy about it really have nothing to do with how many albums I'm selling and my radio charting. And so I was like, I realized if I took years between records, I could kill my momentum. And that's such bad career advice. Every manager will hate you and your record label will question your life choices. <laughs> <laughs> but it made me happy as a human. Mm -hmm. And so taking risks, being adventurous and creativity, I had to write down all the things that fulfilled me. And then I just focused on those. And then I had to give myself permission to figure out a life plan to get my fame level, my work schedule, to have enough rest and room in it, because our jobs are not known for helping mental health no. <laughs> and giving you space to psychologically digest or have time to be fallow, which is as every creative knows, we have to have times of winter yeah. creatively if we're going to go grow new seeds and new crops. Um, so the idea for me, like for everybody as a takeaway of that would be challenging your vocabulary from going from balance to harmony. So balance is a teeter-totter and you're this thing in the middle and I have to balance my uh, children and I, with my career. Well, what really just happened is you pitted two things you love against each other. And I have done that my whole life. I thought if I gave to my career, I had to take from my health. Oh my God, I feel myself. the exact same way. If you weren't burnout, you weren't putting in enough work to be the best. Yep. And so if I wanted time for self, that mean I was taking something away from something I loved equally, my career. And as a parent, if I took time for my career, that meant I took away from my child and vice versa. So now I'm this apex being torn apart in a very dualistic system that's just a 
illusion I made, by the way, this duality, but it was my belief. And my beliefs were affecting my decisions and my experience. So to get out of balance, we want to start thinking of being in harmony, where it's same, same. So I do things from love. All the things in my life are an expression of my love. Mm. So that doesn't mean I'm pitting things against each other. It means it's an extension of my love. And I take refuge in nourishment. That's a whole other philosophical concept, but I'm going to bring it up really briefly because for me, everything in my life has to come from love and it has to nourish myself and my environment. That right there will get you out of this whole balance being torn apart in 50 directions. And I can now stand in that and say, when I am giving time to my work, it is an act of love and it should nourish me and my environment. So now I have a cue for an alarm to go off. When it stops nourishing me, I recognize it and go, I now need time to stop and to rest because I take refuge in nourishment and love. And I believe that if I stop and take time to rest and I nourish myself, that nothing in my life can suffer because it's coming from same, same love and nourishment. And so I am now going to take time to stop and nourish myself. I might have just, you know, had a big failure. And that doesn't mean I should go out and try harder. It means I need to stop and nourish myself and take care of myself. And then in a little thing will come off in your head and go, I'm ready to take this out into the world and nourish my environment again. And so you don't feel like you have to pay a price. When we're in balance, we pay a price. And I... Oh, man, it, it nearly ruined my life. You know, like I went hard on that whole belief system <laughs> and learning to rewire that and say, I take refuge in nourishment and everything I do stems from love. And if I'm present, I can discern the difference between I need time to stop and be still to nourish myself or now I feel nourished by coming out and giving. And some of that's an act of faith that if I stop, which is scary in our job. Yeah. It's all about momentum and <laughs> oh, hustling <laughs> to believe I won't pay a price because if you're doing something that's truly good for you, do you really think the universe is sitting there going, Oh, I'm going to make that right. person pay. No, no, that was me doing that. Right. You know, it's not that I couldn't trust the universe. I couldn't trust myself to really take refuge and nourishment. Uh, so that's one of the, one of the thoughts mindful, present, curious. Yeah. And then the other things, dilation, contraction, I'm happy to, happy to get into with you. Yeah. Let's talk about the dilation contraction thing, if you don't mind, just because, and I, I, one of my favorite songs of yours is hands. And it, that was the moment that you realized that was also, am I right? That's the moment when you were writing that song as well, or that's what turned into hands. Yeah. Yeah. So like a, just a brief thumbnail history of my life yes. for, for people that are <laughs> new to me. Um, I grew up in Alaska. My uh, mom left when I was eight. My dad was a great guy, grew up in an abusive environment, uh, wildly abusive, went to Vietnam, and it was relaxing to him. So that will tell you wow. how abusive his childhood was. He came back after picking up more, more trauma, of course, from Vietnam, had the three of us, and then my mom left. And so he was suddenly a single dad. He started trauma triggering, but those words didn't exist as mm -hmm. far as we were aware of. Started drinking to handle that, and it was a pretty predictable thing. He became abusive, and I moved out at 15. And I knew that, you know, kids like me with my background who move out at 15, the odds of it working are so slim. And I looked at this idea of nature versus nurture, and if I didn't receive good nurture, would I ever get to know my real nature? And something that made me think about it as a side story was a little bunny we had named Caramel. Oh. And Caramel, growing up in the Alaskan wilds, it's tough for a bunny. Yeah. It's tough for a bunny anywhere. <laughs> and so we raised it in the chicken coop. Oh. It was the safest place. And so as a baby, it was raised by hens, and it would, like, the hens would sit on it to keep it warm i mean oh my next level cute <laughs> and then when it grew up it would actually sit on hens nests for them it was just this giant big caramel colored bunny and you would it would hatch eggs for mothers and little baby chickies would like peek up out from under this oh. bunny belly right the world's cutest thing ever oh my god 
And it like would peck its food, like kind of like, it you became, know, chicken like. Yeah. It modeled what it was raised around, which never bothered me until I moved out. And suddenly when I was 15, I was like, holy <laughs> shit, what if I'm a bunny raised by chickens? chickens. <laughs> and I'll never get to know my bunny nature. Right. And how do I get to know my real nature? And how do I not be a statistic? And I realized that, you know, we have this genetic inheritance, but we also have an emotional inheritance. And my dad was raised by an inheritance. His dad was raised by an emotional language. His dad was raised by emotional language. I was taught that same emotional language. And we can't live without speaking. So if somebody prompts me, I'm going to speak the language I was taught. You know, my dad didn't want to become abusive. It's just that he was taught how to use a monkey wrench his whole life. And he didn't want to use the monkey wrench. But the world is a place of action. And so unless somebody puts a screwdriver in your hand and says, here's how to use it, and here's when to use it, and all the million things that lead to discernment, you're going to use a monkey wrench. And it's horrifying. I can tell you, my dad was horrified by his behavior. Mm. I mean, it's a very shameful, awful experience to be part of that. Doesn't mean my needs got met, but I can have a lot of empathy for that. So when I moved at 15, I was like, I need to figure out what my nature is. Can you rewire your brain? Where do you go to learn a new emotional language? I can go learn Spanish in school, but why the hell isn't there anywhere I can go to learn a new emotional skill set? And it set me off on this mission. And I was really like, I had my journal and I was like an emotional scientist. I was going to study like people's behaviors and what things worked for me and what didn't, which was a form of mindfulness. You know, writing causes you to be present. Curiosity causes you to be present. And so that's, it's empowering. I did pretty good, also pretty bad. I mean, I was having panic attacks. Um, I got myself into an amazing art school. I got a lot of good things ticked off, but also a lot of bad, weird stuff started happening. You know, Um, I was also getting sick a lot. I had bad kidneys. This is when I started really shoplifting. So fast forward a couple years, I graduate high school and make it to San Diego. My mom's sick and I'm taking care of her. A boss propositions me at work. And when I won't have sex with him, he won't give me my paycheck. And so I got kicked out of where I was living with my sick mother, like not fun. And she was like, let's just live in our cars. And it was the best idea ever. I was so relieved to have to stop paying this rent that I could (laughs) barely make, you know. And I thought it would last a couple months and I'd save up for a new apartment. But it was a vicious cycle. Uh, My mom ended up going back to Alaska and I was like, I'll figure this out. But my panic attacks were increasing. My agoraphobia was getting to debilitating levels. Uh, My kidneys were really failing. It was just like my whole life screeched to a a really dramatic halt. And I was in a dressing room one day and I was trying to steal a dress that was white. I remember it like was frilly and girly and just new and pretty and everything I felt like I wasn't. And so I'm in this dressing room. I have this dress. I'm trying to shove it down my pants. My God. And there's a mirror. And I see myself wearing these baggy 501s, shoving (laughs) a dress down my pants. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I was like, I'm a statistic. I did not beat the odds. I'm going to end up in jail or dead if I don't turn my life around. And... I remember this quote, it it was attributed to Buddha that said, happiness does not depend on who you are or what you have. It depends on what you think. Mm. And I had my thoughts left, not much else. And so I decided to see if I could turn my life around, literally one thought at a time. And so I didn't steal the dress and I walked out of there. My huge life plan was like, figure out what you're thinking so that you can figure out how to change what you're thinking. <laughs> but when you have so much anxiety, yeah. you can't witness what you're thinking because no. you're disassociating all, the, all time. the time. Yeah. So then I was like, all right, I can't even tell what I'm thinking. So what if I watch what my hands are doing? Because the hands are the servants of your thoughts. It's like your thoughts slow down into action. What am I doing? What am I spending my day doing? And maybe that'll give me some kind of clue into what I'm thinking. Like, it's a bizarre life plan, but it's what I have. (laughs) 
So I journaled and I just literally, so weird, but I just wrote down every single thing my hands did for two weeks. That's all I did every wow. day, all day was go, I washed my hands. I didn't shake so-and-so's hand when they walked by or I played guitar today or just, I mean, it was a really weird like journal section. <laughs> and you were what, 19, 18, it was 15? How old were you during that? 18. 18. I mean, yeah, how I profound 18. to find that for yourself at 18. I'm like, oh, my God. Well, I don't know. It didn't feel profound at all at the time. Right. It just felt like a desperate kind of Hail Mary of like, it's literally the only thing I could think to do. And so I sat down at the end of two weeks and I looked through all what I did. And I mean, there was a takeaway. Clearly, I quit believing in myself. You don't steal. Right. And you know what I mean? Unless you just kind of gave up. up. Yeah. But that wasn't even as interesting as the side effect. My anxiety went away for two weeks. It, I had such a relief. I did not have a panic attack. My anxiety was at a much more manageable level. And I was like, what the holy hell just happened here? It was like <laughs> like a side effect of, you know, like a drug. You're like, wait, I made this to help hearts, but it gave people hard-ons. Isn't that how Viagra <laughs> happened? <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> Classic. It was like this, this amazing side effect that I was blown away by and it was so obvious because my anxiety was so visceral and so what I stumbled on was conscious presence right mindfulness wasn't around that term wasn't around but I stumbled on the fact that when I'm writing and I'm being curious I'm forced to be present, present. and fear I was very fearful was this thief and it took the past and it projected onto a future that hasn't happened and it robbed me of the one opportunity I had to keep myself safe, which is being here. That's the only thing I got. So my, my, my one defense mechanism I had, hypervigilance, looking out and predicting problems, that was to keep myself safe. It was robbing me of the only chance I had to actually keep myself safe, which was showing up in the moment. And showing up in the moment's hard. My life was hard. Like being in my body, being present, it's not like rainbows happen just because you figure out how to be present. Right. <laughs> it's just the truth happens. Right. <laughs> and then you can work with it, but it's not like you sit down and you hear the ohm of the universe and all the problems melt. Away. Right. It's, right. It's an act of courage to be present because you have to deal with the truth. And my truth at 18 is I was in a mess psychologically and physically but because I was able to go, oh, the only moment I have to change is now. That's what mindfulness is. It's noticing a thought, creating a gap before we act on that thought. And that gap is magic. That gap is where I get to go, I'm not going to use my monkey wrench. <laughs> I'm going to abstain from the monkey wrench, even though every single thing in my body, body. wants me to beat people over the head with my monkey wrench. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to abstain. I'm going to take five breaths, whatever it takes. And I'm going to ask myself, what other tool do I have? Whew, that's an act of power. That's a very powerful thing. And that moment led to me continuing to be curious and finding really innovative, creative ways to start actually really rewiring my mind, really finally learning a new emotional language. And it was without therapists. And it was without a family and it was without a support group. And I'm not saying that to be like, wasn't I brilliant? I'm saying that because we all have that power. And I don't want anybody listening to feel like if they don't have a family to turn to, you got this. You know, if you don't trust anyone right now, can you trust yourself? Because often we don't have trust issues with other people. We don't trust ourselves to honor our no to really deeply make nourishing decisions. And so the only reason I bring it up is because we all have this ability to find our own inner reserves and our own inner resilience, even if we don't have access to traditional forms. forms. I love that. I didn't even get to dilation and contraction. So. No, that was, <laughs> I mean, the times in my life that I felt exactly what you were saying in the sort of like purest form has been around horses like the presence and the sort of mindfulness that without any effort and without like trying to control it as a way of like, well, I know I have panic attacks, so I'm supposed to 
be mindful and meditate and do all these things. It's like around the horses or in nature, truly like those are the times. So you're right, like being outside and looking at a tree or the sunshine is accessible to everyone. But you're doing such amazing work. I really, I think this segues great into your foundation with children who you're providing with these tools that I think, oh my gosh, it should be a school subject, just like history, math, <laughs> you know, any, any child needs to learn this. And even as a mother, like you're, you have this foundation and then also being a mother day to day, have you learned how to sort of pass these on in, in a way that you feel confident, like your son will grow up different maybe than we did, like won't have panic attacks because he's so present. I mean, that's of course like pipe dream and nobody gets through life without pain or suffering and all of that. But yeah, I'd love to hear about both motherhood and, and instilling that. And then also your incredible work with your foundation. Yeah. When I got discovered, it's when I was homeless. I wasn't trying to get discovered. But when I was homeless, I really just figured out how to get happy. Mm. Uh, I started learning how to be authentic. You know, I was very, very lonely. And I realized I kind of deserved it because I didn't tell anybody the truth. <laughs> you know, connection's hard, especially if you come from a, an abusive background. Connecting is what we crave, but it's what we fear. And so... The only place I was honest was in this little notebook nobody read. And so I made a commitment to try and be honest and tell people out loud with my words <laughs> the truth. And I got a gig singing in a coffee shop and I did a five-hour set of the most emotionally honest, gut-wrenching, just open your veins and this is, this is who I am type of show. And people cried. It was just two guys in the audience. But they sat there and they were like, I didn't know anybody else felt this way. And I was like, I didn't know anybody else wouldn't laugh at me or reject me or all those things. So during this experience, I learned really how to start rewiring habits, how to specifically look at habit characteristics and change them by looking at what's now called a habit loop, which I'm happy to talk about. I'll just make a note of it if it's something yeah. you, know, you think your listeners would want to talk about. Absolutely. And so when I got signed, I was like, holy hell, this could be the worst idea ever. I just figured out how to get like some purchase on choices that make me happy because happiness is a side effect of choices. And if you take my emotional background and you add fame to it, God forbid, I'm every TV movie you've ever seen about every musician killing themselves one way or another. And so I made myself a promise in my career that my number one job would be to be figure out how to be a happy person. That'd be my number one job. And I had to create a work plan and a life plan and a business plan around that. I had to create actionable steps. My number two job was to figure out how to be a musician. And I never switched those. And I'm really grateful to myself looking back 25 years later that when I took four years off between an album because I was about to have a mental breakdown because I realized my mom had lied about every single aspect of who she was and I was broke. I needed to take a minute. <laughs> you think? Oh, my God. And it cost my career, but it gave me my heart and my humanity. And again, you don't pay a price for that. Mm -hmm. You figure out how to now regenerate. So that commitment is really important. And as I continued because of that commitment to keep developing exercises that were actionable, because... You know, meditation and apps like Calm and, and that, they're amazing. You know, they're helping us learn how to stop and how to dilate. And I will get into dilation <laughs> and contraction, I promise. But now, okay, now you're present. Good job. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. Holy shit. Meditation won't change your life. No. It'll give you a muscle and help you build this muscle to be present but if we can't put that presence to work and create change, you're going to walk out of your meditation room, step on your kid's Lego and be pissed. <laughs> or, you know, I can tell how evolved I am by how patient I am in the grocery store line. If somebody cuts me and I'm like, you mother, mother. Yeah. I'm like, okay, <laughs> meditation does not change the crappy things about my personality. <laughs> and so practicable exercises are where it's at. That's what I like. That's what I like inventing. That's what I like sharing. Um, and I wanted to see, again, 
could I teach these skills to people that didn't have traditional resources? Because there's a lot of us who go, I don't have access to any therapy. I don't have access to any family. Or I have a therapist, but nothing's changing. How can we help those people? And so we started the Youth Foundation about 18 years ago. And it's, you know, kids from every walk of life. Some kids are just lots of panic. They have great great households with some, they're just uncomfortable, right? That they're, they're having anxiety and panic. And then some kids have truly, truly, truly horrific lives that they're dealing with at really young ages. And so we started seeing, could I take these skill sets, give it to kids that don't have access to traditional therapy and can they get change out of it? And the answer is yes. And it's awesome. And these kids are heroic because when you, it was for me, it happened in the mirror, you know, when I was stealing that day in the, the dress when I realized nobody's coming for me, I'm coming for me. If I'm not coming for me, if I keep waiting for somebody else to do it and I keep acting like a victim and acting like the world owes me, I will wait till I die. <laughs> Nobody owes me. I owe myself. What am I willing to do about it? And when you start getting kids to go, okay, I got me. I'm responsible for my happiness then and then they start learning these skill sets it's amazing like our kids are getting into princeton and harvard which isn't the cool part the cool part is they go into these places and they sleep yeah and they eat good and they don't devolve and deconstruct and start self-sabotaging and they start being tremendous forces for good in the world um and it's an incredible thing to be a part of. Our foundation's awesome. It's called Inspiring Children. We'll link all of Inspiring Children too so people can check it out because I love it. I Are there, I mean, I know this is on your Never Broken website too, that people can actually go and, and get these tool worksheets and things that you have that you're talking about right now that you've instilled in these kids, but also anybody who's listening, right, can go on Jewel Never Broken. I'll link that yeah. too um, and, and get those uh, I, I need to download those worksheets. <laughs> yeah, never, Jewel Never Broken is a, it's a nonprofit, it's a free website. There's no fee Great. or anything like that. It's an extension of our youth program where we try to create a scalable or digital ability to practice these things. Because really, it's just you. Like, if you want to sit down and you want to work through these exercises, you'll get things out of it. You know, it doesn't take uh, reliance on somebody else. And it does, however, mean the good and the news, bad news is it's up to you. <laughs> right. And it's an but, actionable, like you said, like, yes, meditation can build that muscle, but how are you going to keep that muscle strong? It's, it's putting it into action. And I think that that's something a lot of us have, have done where we're like, yeah, I have a meditation practice, but that's like what I was suffering from this week is like, I have a beautiful meditation practice, practice. I have the things that I do when I'm anxious, but like really taking that time to be in the present moment and accept the present moment and stay in the present moment is sort of this, the hardest thing I think to do beyond the things we can control, which is like waking up and for 20 minutes doing a meditation on an app or in your, it's like almost that, that's where the true transformation can come in. Yeah, you know, Going back to kind of how we started the conversation, these five primal powers are out there. We don't get to choose how life changes. We do get to choose how it changes us. We have to learn to be present to get in the driver's seat, if you will, to go, okay, X just happened to me. You know, me, 2003, 34, 35 years old. I realize I'm $3 million in debt and my mom ain't who she says she was. <sighs> Frickin' frack. I mean, yeah, I can go through there and I have, and you learn to be accountable and see places you missed it. But also you have to go, how am I going to, I can't choose how life changes, but how is this going to change me? I have every bit of say in that. And so you keep your focus where your focus actually counts, which isn't anger and isn't bitterness. I mean, you're going to have feelings, right? And those are all going to come up, but the work is how am I going to let this change me? I'm going to, am I going to become more bitter more mistrusting, more rigid, or am I going to become more loving and more kind and more empathetic and more present? Because I can pretty much guarantee all that happened because of somewhere I wasn't present, <laughs> <laughs> you know, somewhere I was interacting with my own delusion. Um, and then you got to get to work doing that. And it's this very active choice. And that's where the work comes. 
And to your point, we don't practice spirituality to control the outer forces of the world. We don't practice spirituality to become perfect. Yeah. We don't practice spirituality to think that there's a state that exists where we'll never be hurt again. We're in a relationship with our world, and it's sadly part of the admission. But we get to choose how it changes us, and we get better and better at that to the point now I can go through COVID, and I'm like, I know I got this because I've been through this process enough of how is this going to change me? And I have my little work list, if you will, of how do you metabolize this? How do you uh, transmute these into it forming you, how you want to be formed, you know, the shape of your little bonsai tree of life. Um, so I guess maybe it might be a good time to talk about like dilation and contraction um, because maybe just working specifically with anxiety because everybody is experiencing anxiety. You know, the numbers are um, just astronomical. They're where they've never been before. One in four kids are contemplating suicide. So it's, it's rough out there and something we all need to really work on. Um, so with dilation and contraction, um, you know, when I started watching my hands, my anxiety didn't totally disappear. It got to manageable levels. <laughs> I did still have panic attacks after that. Um, you know, it doesn't all just disappear poof overnight. So I was still having panic attacks. Um, I started to realize there's only two basic states of being. You are either dilated and open or you are contracted and tight. And then I realized every single thought, feeling, or action leads to one of those two states. So I want everybody listening, if you want to participate, to, you know, you would write down on a piece of paper. I'll do it for people just for fun. But you'll have a section in your notebook that says dilation, and then maybe halfway through or 20 pages later, have a section that says contraction. But I can do it really quickly on just like a little piece of paper for people. Oh my and God. every, you'll have a section that says thoughts. You have a section that says feelings. And then you'll have a section that says actions. Ooh. And this is going to look really silly, but I, love I think this. this is sort of visual. And if you can read my handwriting, you can say I have dilation and contraction, thoughts, feelings, and actions. actions. And so I, I'm, I'm visceral, so I notice my body a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't really, I can't really notice what I'm thinking, but I do notice the feeling in my body. And so when I'm contracted, anxious, it's an ally. So I sit down and I get curious and I go, oh, interesting. What was I just thinking, feeling, or doing? And so I have to sit there and think about it. I'm like, oh, my God, I was just beating myself up, telling myself I'm fat. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting you to say, so that made me laugh for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I had, like, an eating disorder when I was young, oh, you know, no. and so yeah, I was no. so hard on my body, we you know? We all are. I, yes, <laughs> I feel the same. We've talked about this on harmonics a yeah. lot, it's how we beat ourselves yeah. up over our bodies. So, yes, agree. And so... Like I said, our anxiety is our body's way of communicating, saying, I just ate something poisonous and I'm throwing up. I just consumed a thought, feeling, or action that does not agree with me. So let me figure out what it is. Um, it might have been that I was talking to somebody and they actually made me feel unsafe. Or it might be I'm feeling really isolated and that's making me feel unsafe. We have a lot of stories going on in our head. We got a lot of baloney going on up there that we think is a fact. And so you start writing it down. So every time you're anxious, sit down and go, what was I thinking, feeling, or doing? And then put it in one of those boxes. You're going to start seeing recurring themes. You're going to start seeing that you play a scary movie in your head and you go to it over and over and over and it scares the pants off of you. So let's say you start noticing a really big theme. One that used to just unravel me was I don't know what I'm doing. Which is pretty true. I moved out young and I was trying to figure some stuff out that was way over my head. But it would short circuit me like very few things could. And this is where we get into affirmations for a tiny side second. Affirmations are kind of, we don't want to just neutralize a negative thought. So if you're sad, be happy. Yeah. It, it doesn't work. It's not grounded. It isn't going to create change. It's just escapism. Yeah. It's a much, it's an elegant form of escapism. So we're not looking to create affirmations. We're looking to find the truth. 
So if in your little journal, you start noticing a thought that keeps coming over and over and over. For me, it was, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> the truth wasn't the opposite. I know what I'm doing. If I told myself that affirmation, it's, it's a lie. Yeah. And I knew it. And it doesn't really help. And then you wonder, what's wrong with me? My affirmations aren't working. I was going to say, it makes it worse because it just keeps like getting bigger. What you, you know. It's true. <laughs> and so the truth was actually... I won't stop till I learn. Mm. That is the damn truth about me. And the second I say it to myself, my whole body relaxes. That's the truth. I can take that to the bank. I may not know what I'm doing, but I won't stop ah. until I figure it out. So every time my scary movie started playing, I don't know what I'm doing, I would stop. And sometimes I did it a thousand times a day. And I would go, I won't stop till I figure it out. I'll learn. Mm. And that starts to relax me. So going back to dilation and contraction in your little journal, start writing down every time you feel relaxed and open, what are you thinking, feeling, and doing? So horses. actions were <laughs> surfing, horses, being in nature, taking walks, being around friends was not on my list because that was pretty nerve wracking. <laughs> I didn't have any friends when I was homeless. Oh. Um, but there were still lots of actions that made me feel calm and open writing. Um, Feelings, curiosity, uh, observation made my whole system relax. Uh, joy, gratitude, connection, helping others. Even when I was homeless, I started volunteering to help people because selfishly, it just made me feel better. Yeah, <laughs> it made course. my system dilate. Um, and then thoughts, you know, learning to say, I'll figure it out. Learning to say, I'm here. I haven't killed myself. I'm here. And that's something. I am here. And I matter. And I count. So you start seeing these lists. Now, you can't be in two states at one time. And that's pretty cool. Because I don't really believe in hacks. You know, like nature doesn't have hacks. Like, right. <laughs> it just like, is. <laughs> you do the work. Yeah. It is. Like, you don't yeah. get out of anything. No. So the quickest shortcut is through. The buffalo is actually the only animal that when there's a storm, it goes into the heart of the storm. And so I was like, my mantra when I was little was like, be the buffalo. Be the buffalo. Move toward the pain. Move toward the anxiety and ask it questions. So when you realize you can't be in two states at once, when you're really contracted, if you get really curious and you look at your list of dilation, if you pick something that is a thought, feeling, or action... And you fully commit to where your whole being becomes absorbed, fully present and absorbed in that. You will work your way out of a contracted state. You have to. It's just biology. Mm. So the way I was able to work myself out of my first panic attack was actually by doing this. Um, I first have to say I've been pan having panic attacks for three years at this point. I'd had a lot of them. I had been able to gain some awareness around them, maybe not cut them off at the pass, but realizing I was ramping into one, I used to not be able to do that. I just was in one suddenly and yeah. I don't know what triggered me. So that took a lot of mindfulness, right? To even get to where I could kind of feel, feel one coming on. Yeah, I feel, yeah, I've had the same experience. Yeah. And so, and I'm happy to share a meditation that would help get me out of my panic attacks if that's anything you or anybody's wanting. But I felt a panic attack coming on and I looked at my list of dilation and gratitude was worked good for me. And when I focused my brain on what was working, holy crap, I felt better. You know, so I made it. That's why gratitude practices are powerful. Um, and so I decided to become profoundly grateful and see if I could thwart a panic attack. And I was homeless. And I was, you know, it's easy to be like, I don't have much to be thankful for. But I sat there and the sun was shining through this palm tree and it made this beautiful pattern on my clothing, which kind of looked like this actually, this mottled lacy pattern. And I suddenly was transported to being a kid in Alaska on the meadows when the meadows oh. held me like a parent. And I'd watch just that beautiful poetic moment. And I suddenly was so profoundly grateful I was there to see that little poetic moment that I would have missed. But more importantly, because I was alive. I hadn't killed myself. I didn't know what to do about it all. But I was here, and that was an act of just radical defiance in and of itself. And I became so grateful. I was moved to tears. And the next thing I knew, I was like, wait, 
I'm crying out of gratitude. I'm not having a panic attack. Whoa, it was amazing. The trick is you have to fully commit. Your whole system has to be stimulated. It can't be like, I'm, I'm grateful. grateful that I'm yeah. healthy today. It can't just be <laughs> With like a, bad a list attitude. that you're like, uh, I guess I'm grateful. And it, you know, it ha you have to feel it in your whole being. I, I, yeah. I, I feel the difference between those two when I've done yeah. them too. And that's where it's good to pick one. If you're going to try and use it in this system to get out of a contracted state, focus on one thing and become fully absorbed in it the way you do with meditation. Yep. What's it feel like? What's it sound like? What's yeah. it do to my body? That's full presence. Um, and so that's a really powerful exercise because now you're this. in the driver's seat. And if you look at, if you look at drug use, drugs do two things. One class dilates you, mm, one class contracts, contracts you. That's so true. If we had a better understanding of when to properly dilate and when to properly contract, we would not need drugs to do it for us. So when we look at the drug use in the world, in my eyes, what we're seeing is an atrophied relationship with appropriate abilities to dilate and contract because we get rewired, right? Love should make you dilate. Not me. <laughs> I mean, uh-uh. You mentioned love and I'm gonna go, <laughs> Because of experience. So learning how to get back and reclaim a natural state, right? Nature versus nurture. To get back into a naturalness and authenticity is a whole journey. And it's kind of what I'm writing a book about now, but. <gasps> Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah, the dilation and contraction will get you a long ways. So if you have a hard time sleeping, mm. me, me, I couldn't <laughs> dilate at night. And yeah, I just, you, you know, if you look at one of my dear friends, Tony Shea from Zappos recently. Oh, yeah. Ended up dying and, and he had a really rough go of it and drug use prior to that. And a lot of it is, and I won't, I'll make it very general because it's everybody's story. You know, you're a little kid, you have emotional pain. And having pain makes you want to tighten so you can suppress a feeling. We contract to suppress emotions. Because when we dilate, ooh, all these uncomfortable emotions come up. We don't know what to do with them. So when we work and throw ourselves into work and become workaholics, what we're doing is investing in our ability to stay in contracted states longer and longer. Now, if you're smart or talented, God forbid, you're going to get rewarded for it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to get really validated for learning how to keep your mm -hmm. muscle in a contracted state. And you're going to get praise and your self-esteem will feel good. Well, you still have a dilation problem and you still right. have an emotion problem. And so somehow you need to dilate. So maybe you drink and you rage or maybe you don't drink and you just rage and then you feel better. And you're like, whoo, right on. <laughs> I feel better. Or you disassociate and you start taking things that help you disassociate. Um, or your body starts getting really anxious to let you know we're not comfortable yeah. with every single thing in our life right now. And you're like, shut up, anxiety. I'm going to squash you. Yeah. And so you start to double down on chemical or mechanical ways to help you dilate just to sleep or help you dilate just to have a feeling or how to stay contracted so you don't have to do any of it. And so for me, when I look at addicts, what I see isn't really chemical dependency. I see that we have to teach people when and how to appropriately dilate and contract. Oh, my God. I just saw it's 1130 and I'm like, wait, but I there's so much. Uh, but uh, well, maybe we could do a part two at some point. But I, yeah. I have two funny personal questions. My first one is from my dad, because Alaska, the last frontier is his favorite show. And he texted me this morning and said, ask her if her dad will adopt me. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll ask her. That's just a side note from Dave Bear's shout out. How old is he and is he capable of work? My He's, dad will adopt people that can work. He is absolutely capable of work, <laughs> thinking about retiring soon. So like he's 60, but like he's really in shape, works out a lot. He would love I hate saying this, but my dad and my whole kilter family are all about people coming up for free labor. They will take some people on. By the way, Michael and I are in too because we just want to be in nature at all times. Like we live in Los Angeles, but like our dream is to live on a some sort of farm with our family someday. So yes, your family is my whole family's heroes and we'll come That's help awesome. chop wood or clean the outhouses or whatever we have to do. 
That's awesome. Um, we would welcome you. So I have one other selfish question. I have always, always wanted to learn how to yodel because I was, I was obsessed with the sound of music when I was a little girl. And she has the yodeling song, obviously. So like, also, I just found this practice called kulning which is like a Swedish practice where they called in the animals. It's like, hmm. um, anyways, so is there anything online where it teaches you how to yodel? Like, did you just know from a little young age how to yodel or did your dad teach you? Like, how how do you know how to do it, Jewel? Yeah, yeah, my, um, my family's Swiss, but my dad did not learn to yodel there. He learned in America off of Jimmy Rogers records. I was gonna say, um, was it just listening to a bunch of like Jimmy Rogers records and learning yep. that way? Okay. Yeah, and then... He got to be very, very good at it in a very Swiss and German more style. And I would think I was five and I was wanted to learn because it's like, you know, when you're five, it's really cool. Oh, my God. <laughs> I still think it's really cool. So <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with I me. I remember he was like, you're too young. Like your voice doesn't know how to crack, crack yet it. or something. I don't know who told him that. But I was like, apparently that's the way to get me to do things. Tell me I can. Can't and then it. I go away in secret. And I like secretly, I practiced and I practiced in defiance. <gasps> I and love then one it. day I was like, da-da, up yours, dad. Oh my God. <laughs> I can yodel. So really I have to stop listening to Julie Andrews' version and listen to Jimmy Rogers is what you're saying. No, no, anything will work. It's actually so simple. I'll just teach you to do it right now. Oh my God. So you yes. go from your low voice to your high voice. Okay. And you know how you have a chest voice and then and a, a head, head voice? voice? Yes. And somewhere there's a switch where you have to switch. And so for people that aren't singers, I'll just demonstrate it really quick. So I can go in my chest voice like, uh, that's about as high as I can go. Then I have to switch and go, you know, you can go higher. So the yodel happens somewhere around that switch. Okay. Because it's a muscular discoordination, uncoordination. Don't know what the word right, right, really right <laughs> word. But you basically slide quickly across that break in your voice and your muscle has to go like that, kind of, and it goes, and it. And then you kind of learn how to really focus on it. So the way I get people to do it is to slide low to high using a lot of force. So don't do it gently. Okay. Go a a a a. You're gonna yodel like you're in. A a a. <laughs> My husband just walked in the room. He's like, "What it's are so you It's so ugly to learn. A a yeah. Don't think about it. Push hard. Push hard like a lot of air pushing up against across that crack. You can go just slow. Hey. Hey. No. I had it first. Hey. It helps if you slide up too. Hey. Yep. That was it. Okay. Well. So that... now you just need to develop an OCD level obsession with, with yodeling. That crack. Hey. Yeah. And country singers do it all the time. Like if you and Dolly, yeah, they all do it. They yeah. all do it. Country singers do it a lot. Cranberries singer, yes. you know, she did it a lot. Duh, that's a yodeling. Oh, yeah. eh. And so, really, if Duh. you just imitate them, you'll get you'll it. get it. Duh. And then the rest is just a tongue twister. You learn yodelei, yodelou, yodelou, yodelei. That's very sound of music. I can remember that. So a o. O E Yodelei Yodelou Yodelou Yodelei, and then you just start going A A A O O O, and then the next step would be Yodelei Yodelei Yodelou Yodelou, and then you can get super fast. You know, once you get really good at it, yeah. Okay, I love this. Thank you. I was like a dream. I actually really do want to learn because I think it's awesome just for me. <laughs> you can do it. I, you're already there. You have the crack. I so got to get just the practice. crack. Um, no, you already crack. have it. It's just, yeah, learning to do it at will. And not being going into it from like high on a hill slowly. That's like all I think about is the sound of music. Yeah, think about sliding right there instead of skipping it. So yeah. people think they do yodelay. It's not it's that. Not, yodelay. It's yodelay. Yeah. Ah. Um, let's see. Okay, these final questions we ask everyone. So, you can only bring three records with you to a deserted island. What would they be and why? A Sarah Vaughn live record. Mm. You know, singing's all about 
breath control, really. It's just managing breath, and that affects your tone and your phrasing. And her breath control is the finest of... I'm a huge Ella Fitzgerald fan. Oh. You know, I, I love Maria Callas, but Sarah Vaughn, to me, her tone and her breath control were world-class. Um, probably a Leonard Cohen CD. I just could listen to his lyrics oh. over and over and over and over. Um... And then if I'm alone on a desert island, I'd probably need, like, some Metallica or just something yeah. to get, like, some aggression out. So <laughs> Totally. <laughs> I like that Maybe answer. Maybe a Nirvana record. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Those are good. Those are really good answers. This is what, that's one of my favorites we've had. Um, what subject do you Google the most? Hmm. How to get on Chrome versus Safari, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good answer. So many people, actually, you'd be surprised to have uh, said that they Google how to help anxiety. Which yeah. is like, so I haven't Googled that, but probably because I'm just like reading about it on my whole bookshelf. But um, yeah, that's funny. No, honestly, if you looked at my Google search, it's probably I like physics a lot. Um, a lot of the ideas I got about the mindfulness practices I developed were based on a lot of the physics books I was reading, you know, that particle non-locality exists. If that really exists, that means we're in a relationship with our environment we can't quite comprehend. You know, if a light particle doesn't even decide where to go until you start directing it, what Einstein called the spooky, the, what is it, the spooky effect? That's really powerful. And that's yeah. what really inspired me to go like, what if I can affect my environment? Not because I'm a powerful god, but because there's something about the fabric of the way quantum mechanics works. So, have you read Joe Dispenza? Yeah, oh, yeah. I just read Becoming Supernatural and the Unbecoming Yourself, and that's like exactly the quantum yeah. physics of it. So yeah, a lot of people are are, are uh, referring those, but yeah, if you get into just like superstring theory or particle non-locality, that's it's, awesome. The bomb diggity, and that's we really probably can. what I, I mean. You can manifest everything. That's and not from like a frou frou spiritual hippy dippy way, but like a general like yeah. gen scientific it's what, way. That Buddha quote: "What you think you become is yeah. just how it works." So we always have a Dolly Parton question because um, I'm obsessed with her, and so we usually do a true or false. So your Dolly question is true or false? Parton's middle name comes from her maternal great great grandmother. True. Yes, and her name was Rebecca Dunn Witted. Nice. Also, you had a single with Dolly. Can you tell me any good Dolly stories? Brandy Carlisle told us like the best Dolly story, and I love hearing people's Dolly encounters and stories. She's incredible. I mean, she's everything, you know, she's everything you <sighs> hope that woman would be and far exceeding it. Gosh, yeah, you know, she... She sang on a song of mine called My Father's Daughter, and I was producing it. That's, by the way, my second favorite song of yours, After Hands. Wow. I love that song. It's Thank so you. beautiful. And that music video, too. I was just re-watching recently. Aww. So good. Yeah. So she comes in the studio. She shows up at 8 a.m. I've heard she's very punctual. I'm very punctual, too. Um, so I was there at, like, 7, just in case. She was there at 745. And she was like, hey, you know, just so glad to be here. And I just love your song. And it reminds me of one of mine. And I was dying and trying not to pass out. And she goes, now, look, you need to boss me around in the studio now if I'm not doing my job. Now, if you can't, I understand. But I brought him to keep me accountable. And so she brought somebody because clearly, like, she <laughs> realizes like a lot of people in my position will not say a thing. And she still wants to do a great job, so she brought somebody else just that she knew would, would speak up. <laughs> like a backup. I love that. Wow. And, uh, I mean, I just have so many stories. And she also has a great rotten sense of humor, too, Ooh, which I, I love. love. I'm really rotten. Um, and, like, my son, I, you know, I wanted a picture of her and my son. It's like, yeah. I'm a huge Dolly fan. And my son was little, and so he was just crying, you know. And I'm trying to get a picture with Dolly, and he's screaming. And she thought it was the best thing. She's like, let's get him on the ground and, like, sit on him. and get, <laughs> That way it'll look like he should be crying. <laughs> like, oh, my God. I love her even awesome. more now. Oh, she's so awesome. I, I love her so much. She's the best ever. Oh, that's a great Dolly story. Okay, final question. This is the blank room exercise we do with everyone. So if you don't mind, close your eyes. Go into a blank room. What are you hearing? Just quiet. What are you smelling? Mm, like the north wind. Mm. 
What are you tasting? I went for lemons. <laughs> what are you touching? Uh, my hands are on my lap. What are you seeing? Uh, just a white screen. Yay. Thank you so yeah. much. Guys, I could have talked to Jewel forever. She's my favorite one we've ever had. Yay, because I like winning. <laughs> Jewel's like, I love it. I'm the best. Just don't tell anyone else. I mean, I'm nice, but I want to win, all right? I want to win harmonics. <laughs> Thank you so much. Beth, so nice to finally get to see you. And So nice to finally get to see you. Please keep letting me know if you ever need any help with your mental health work because um, obviously I'm just as passionate about that. So Awesome. Yeah, thank you. I would love that and I will take you up on it and likewise. Yes. Mwah. Thank you. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Peace. Have a great day. You too. Uh, I think I'm going to save this interview just like I saved Glennon Doyle's interview and re-listen whenever I need to pick me up. Jewel, thank you so much. You are such an inspiration. I just love you so much, and I'm so grateful that we're becoming friends. You guys should all check out everything she does on her Instagram because she's so active, especially with her work with mental health and with the organizations she supports. So I can't wait for you to hear more about Jewel on there. And thank you, Jewel. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We are really trying to build a community here over at Harmonics, and that is why I started the newsletter. I would love it if you would subscribe to that on our website. And also, if you love this podcast, please tell your friends. Please rate and review on Apple. We'd be so appreciative. We really would. And perhaps we will do some giveaways for those of you who rate our podcast and join the newsletter. So check us out at harmonicspodcast.com. This episode of Harmonics was produced and edited by Chris Jacobs and is only possible with the superb leadership of executive producer Amy Reitenauer Jacobs, research producer Courtney Locks, and the entire team over at the Bluegrass Situation. Theme music by Allison Russell. Discover more at Allison Russell Music on Instagram and wherever you stream your music. I'm your host, Beth Bears. Until next time, always remember that creativity is healing and healing is creative. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.